Open your Bibles, please, this evening to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And let's seek the Lord together once again in prayer. Father in heaven, I praise and I thank you for your Holy Son, Jesus Christ, and all the blessings that we have in Him. Father, I thank you that in these things that we sang tonight, Lord, we we have sung truths that I hope burn in our hearts. There is but one foundation for the church of God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that it is our heart's desire to worship and adore Him, to magnify Him in His glory this evening. Father, I thank You for the Holy Spirit who gives life to Your people and who gives light that we might understand and receive Your Word. Now, Father, I thank You for these dear ones that You have brought this evening. I pray with all of my heart that You would come and help us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Father, I pray that uh, for each of these that you brought, that you would bless them, that you would speak to them by thy holy word. And Father, that our hearts might be united in the love for Christ, in him who loved us and gave himself for us. Bless thy word, edify thy people. And Father, if it would please thee, stir the dead and sinners awake. May they see life in Christ Jesus, our beloved Lord. And we pray these things in His name. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to read two passages tonight. We're going to begin in John 13, verse 34. Brethren, let us hear the Word of God. <clears throat> A new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Now let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Also penned by the same author. 1 John 3 and verse 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. I pray the Lord bless the reading of his holy word to our hearts this evening. I don't know about you, but I love the Apostle John. He is at once the simplest of the New Testament writers, and yet he is often the most profound. John is known to us in history as the Apostle of Love. Now, he called himself the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But Jesus named him and his brother James the Sons of Thunder. John tells us that he wrote his gospel so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life through his name. And one of the reasons I love uh, John so much is 
because he tended to see things black and white. I had an interesting discussion about that today with someone here. Uh, I didn't know that I would have that discussion in light of what I was going to be preaching. But John certainly saw things in black and white. It's one of the reasons, I believe, that the Lord called him the Son of Thunder. We see, uh, we see this in chapter 2 of, of this epistle to John, where he says, Hereby we do know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. It's pretty black and white. The son of thunder. You can hear it rumble a little bit there, can't you? Uh, To call people that uh, do a particular thing liars is very strong language. And yet John doesn't hesitate to say that at all, inspired by the Spirit of God. Now we see the same thing in the way that he tells us that the children of God can be distinguished from the children of the devil. Today it seems like we're very confused about who is one of God's servants and who isn't. And I'm the first one to admit there are moments when uh, the lost man may, in the eyes of the world, look very good. And likewise, there are moments when those who are the regenerate children of the Lord don't look so. I wish it were not that case, uh, but it is. Nevertheless, John tells us as plainly as it can be said, God's children do righteousness. The children of the devil practice lawlessness. By transforming or by the transforming power of the new birth, God's children have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they walk in obedience to His Word. This is one of the themes that you find in everything that John writes. And then he goes on to say, they don't sin, that is, they don't live lives characterized by open rebellion, to God and he says they walk in obedience to his word they do what he says why John answers because God's seed the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit remains in them once again that's really quite simple you have to read a lot of commentaries to get this as difficult as most people see it John says, when the Spirit of God dwells within you, you walk with Christ. He's not talking about perfection. He's simply saying that the desire of your heart, the drive of your heart, is to follow hard after your Master. That's what the Spirit of God does within the hearts of those that He has birthed from above. So John speaks this way. It is true. We must always take these things, compare them to the rest of Scripture, and understand them in the light of all of what God's Word says. But John doesn't even give us that commentary. He just says these things and sets them before us and makes us deal with them. Now this brings us to chapter 3 in 1 John. Verses 14 and 15, as we have read, say we know that we have passed from death into life. And John uses this word, know, over and over. We know. We know. He doesn't say, well, we hope or we guess or maybe, or probably, or hopefully, he says, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. 
It's interesting here that he doesn't say, we know that we've passed from death into life because we finally got a hold of the five points. We know that we've passed from death into life because we read John Owen and understand him. Or the Puritans. Or Spurgeon. All of these things are fine. But that isn't the acid test. Inspired by the Spirit of God, John says, we know that we have life from heaven itself because we have a love for God's children. He goes on to say, He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Regardless of what a man's profession may be, regardless of what a man's experiences may seem to be, if he does not love the children of God, he has no reason to believe he's passed from life unto death. This is the way John speaks. Black and white. Sons of Thunder. Now, burning in John's mind when he says this is his beloved Lord's command. This was what we began with. A new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you. You see, if you read John's Gospel and then read his epistle, you see John inspired in the Gospel learning at the feet of Christ, in his epistle, you see him giving an exposition of how learning at the feet of Christ looks in the life of God's children. John says, You know you've been born of Christ because you love Christ's children. Now this, this pulls us into a sphere that we have to deal with. And it's very real. Jesus told us, by this the world knows that you're my children. By this the world knows that you're my children. If you love one another as I have loved you. And John is working that out. Now let me, let me say immediately, most of us hear the word love and we tend to think in, in the way that our society has programmed us to think about love. But the first thing I want to drive home is that love is not a feeling. Now this is something that I usually like to take some time and hammer out, but uh, since I'm not doing a series and since I have some specific things I want to say, I will only give you a brief summary. But the scriptures tell us patently that love is keeping the law of God. Now read Romans carefully. Love towards someone is not having a nice, warm, mushy feeling in your bosom towards someone. As a matter of fact, sometimes love, biblical love, doesn't feel good at all. Especially when you're looking at that brother or that sister that just really rubs you the wrong way. It's not talking about a feeling. It is talking about a clear, spirit-led decision to treat them according to the laws of God. If you love your brother, then you will not lie to him. That's simple. If you love your brother, you will not covet his things. So the Scriptures make very plain that love is not some kind of schmoozy feeling that we get. We all walk in and just feel giggly toward each other. 
But it means that we come in with hearts on fire, in love for Christ, desirous of showing to all those that are His children what the Word of God calls us to do toward them. With willing and obedient hearts. And that's one of the reasons John says, if you've been born of Christ, you love His children. Jesus told us to love His children. That's His commandment. He is the Lord. And if you don't keep His commandment, you're a liar. Black and white. The sons of thunder. Now, of course, that has to be hammered out in many practical ways. John does that throughout his epistle. And we find it throughout the Scriptures. But that's what we've got to get a hold of. Our Lord has given us a commandment that is so uh, breathtaking in its clarity that sometimes we do everything we can to uh, explain away what's being said there. But we must show a sacrificial, self-denying obedience towards those that are God's children. Apart from that, we're lying about saying that Jesus Christ is our Lord because that's exactly what He did. He loved the ungodly while they were yet ungodly and gave Himself for them. Not for the righteous, but for the ungodly. If He did so for the ungodly, if He did so for us, and if we have that example, then quite obviously... What, what a greater joy for us if seeing that love we lavish the same kind of love on those that are the Lord's children. But less than that, friends, at very best is sub-Christian. At worst, it's just not Christianity. It's talk. Now, it is clear that the theme of loving God's children is one of the most important in the Bible, and it is central to John's teaching. He first raises the theme in chapter 2, and then throughout the entire epistle, John constantly returns to that theme because it burned in his own heart. He heard it from the lips of Christ. Little children love one another. Little children love one another. And in, in, the, uh, in a manifestation of true discipleship, this is what the Lord, uh, this is what John himself is calling us to do. That brings us to our theme here tonight. <clears throat> a godly man is a man who loves the saints. Our title is A Man Who Loves the Saints. So I want, I want to open this up under these heads, God being my helper. First of all, the necessity of God's, the godly man's love. Number two, the ingredients of a godly man's love. Number three, the antithesis of the godly man's love. And finally, the attainment of the godly man's love for the brethren. First of all, then, let's consider this. The necessity, the necessity of the godly man's love. I trust we've already seen that by the very command of Christ, this is not an option. This is not a suggestion. This is not something to go find in a book on the, the, the ten keys to a happy uh, Christian life. This is out and out, front and center, biblical Christianity. 
being saved by grace is manifested in many ways, but one that the Holy Spirit brings to the surface over and over and over, and it absolutely fills John's epistle, is the love for God's children. It is not a divine suggestion. It is not something hatched out of the fevered minds of men. It is a divine directive. And one that God's children, those who have been given a new heart, are happy to embrace. Now why is this? Because it's the heart and soul of why God saved us. Unfortunately, we live in such a day of individualism that all we tend to think about when we look at the gospel is, well, I don't want to go to hell. I believe these things. Wonderful. I'm on the way to heaven. And that's it. But the Lord saves us unto something. It's not only heaven. Between now and heaven, there is a life to live. Christianity is the very life of God in the soul of man. Henry Skugel wrote a book by that title. It was used mightily of the Lord in the, in the life, I believe, of George Whitfield. We're not talking about simply embracing an interesting philosophy. We are talking about a miracle of grace where God, in His sovereign mercy, comes to wicked sinners and He breathes life into their souls by the power of the Holy Spirit. He regenerates them. He births them from above or He births them again. And brethren, where there is divine life, it is inescapable that there will be fruit. And that fruit, over and over, is set before us in the very terms of loving God's children. This is the very summary of what Christianity is. God loved those that were utterly unworthy of His mercy and His grace and His kindness. How absolutely hypocritical of us that we say, oh yes, the love of my life is the God that reached down to a wicked sinner like me, gave me a new heart, filled me with the Spirit, called me to walk with Him, I'm on my way to heaven, but I can't stand this brother and can't even sit in a room with him. That is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is love. And God loved us. And God commanded us to love Him and one another. Now many of us would like to stop with the first part. Oh, I love God. It's easy to love Him. He loved me. But they don't go into the, the, the other part. And His children. And I can say to you, if I understand the Scriptures correctly... Friend, your relationship to the living God is directly equal to how you're treating His children. If we don't love one another, we cannot rightfully claim to love Him because He loves them. Now, turn with me to Romans chapter 13 very briefly and let's look at verse 8. Romans chapter 13. And let me simply reiterate what I said a few moments ago regarding this issue of love not being a feeling. Paul tells us plainly, Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no man anything 
but to love one another. Let's read that again. Owe no man anything, but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. In other words, those things that the law commands are fulfilled in us when, by the grace and mercy of God, we do those things towards His children. What defines what love is here? It is the law of God. And he says, Love, excuse me, uh, verse 9, For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, don't tell me you're being led by the Spirit. Oh, and we've got people all over the landscape today that they don't need what the Word of God says because they're, they're led by the Spirit. Friend, if you're being led by the Spirit, it will be right down according what He has written in His Word. And that means if the Spirit of God dwells in you, there will be the desire, difficult as it may be to do, to love God's children by treating them according to what the law says. He says it's summed up. That's what it means to love your brethren. This is the example and a perfect example of biblical love. It is self-sacrificing. It is Christ-minded. It is a spirit-led choice to treat someone in this manner. Matthew chapter 22, verse 35. Uh, turn with me there. Matthew 22, verse 35. <clears throat> Let us hear our Master speaking. Matthew 22, verse 35 says, Then one asked, or excuse me, then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second one is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Brethren, that's an astounding statement. The Lord Jesus Christ is saying that the sum total of the 39 books of the Old Testament is to love God with all your heart and love His children. There are two errors that are rampant all around us. Number one is the professing Christianity that says, Oh yes, we love God, we love God, we love God, but they leave the second commandment off here. And then the world, who loves the second commandment, let's all get together, let's all hold hands, let's all be friends, but they don't love God. Brethren, it is a clear manifestation of the work of the Holy Spirit when both of these are united in the heart. That the love that we have for our God becomes a fervent love manifested toward His children. 
So, the love that, that is being uh, commanded to us here is clearly a necessity. It is a necessity. We are fooling ourselves about our professions, except this be a reality in our lives. Now, let's consider, secondly, the ingredients of a godly man's love. Let's consider the ingredients. And this, of course, is not exhaustive, and I, I hope it's not exhausting, but uh, my desire is for us to look first at 1 John 3, 18. 1 John 3, 18. <clears throat> The scriptures make very plain, knowing our, uh, knowing our natural ability to deceive ourselves, the scripture makes very, very plain how this love is to show up. First uh, John three eighteen says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth. And shall assure our hearts before him. Brethren, I guarantee you in the years that I have pastored and in the years prior to that when I was simply teaching and, and taking part in, in various ministries of, of the assemblies of which I have been a member. That one of the keys to sitting down and talking with people that are constantly saying, you know, well, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I, 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 don't know if, I, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't have any assurance. Friends, one of the missing elements and one of the things that is almost always lying at the bottom of this is love for the brethren. When you are not actively doing what the Word of God says toward those that Christ has joined you to, you have every reason not to have assurance. You see John's uh, clear language here. We can assure our hearts before the Lord. Why? Because it will take, it will take dying to ourselves. It will take uh, taking up the cross to love one another as He loved us. Brethren, dying to ourselves is the hardest work on the planet. But it is a reality by the Spirit of God's grace. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan preacher, says, Pretended love is like a painted fire which hath no heat in it. Pretended love is like a painted fire. You look on the wall and you see a nice, wonderful painting of a fire, but it doesn't heat you up because it's not real. And that's exactly the kind of thing that we should avoid at all costs. We're commanded by Peter to have an unfeigned love for the brethren. Don't be a phony. Don't come in and smile and say, hi, wonderful to see you. And then you get back at lunch and you have him for dinner. I mean, this is, this is hypocrisy. Now, it should be then clear. Biblical love should be sincere. Biblical love should be sincere. Secondly, biblical love should be spiritual. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the saints are loved by the same Father. My Father is your Father. Your Father is mine. We're loved by the same Father. We're redeemed by the same Son. We are regenerated by the same Holy Spirit. Our God is a Spirit, and they that know Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And His kingdom is spiritual. 
Our Lord Jesus told us that unless a person was born again, he could not enter, he couldn't even see the kingdom of God. And as Paul writes, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So our love, likewise, is to be spiritual. So, if that's the case, we're not to love the saints simply because we have common interests. It doesn't matter whether you love bass fishing, and I don't. It doesn't matter whether we both love to play the guitar or the piano or whether we like the same authors. All those things are fine. I'm not saying it's wrong to have those things in common. But that is not the basis of our love for God's people. And unfortunately, that's what drives most people. I want to be around some people that kind of like are into the things that I'm into. And oh, okay, we have three children. We want to be around people that have three and four children and all of these kinds of things. Brethren, some of the most precious fellowship I've ever had in my whole life were with people with whom I had nothing in common in, in a, a human sense. But both of our hearts yearned for Christ. And we could spend the afternoon in most glorious fellowship. We are not to love the saints because they have personalities that we find engaging. Oh, I like to talk to them. They're lively. They're talkative. Brother so-and-so over here, he's kind of like a brick. Let's, you know, not interested in talking to him. We're not to love the saints because they're wealthy. That was clearly a problem going all the way back to the first century church. James said, look, don't make any special place for this rich fellow to come in who's wearing his fine garb and he's got his jewels on. You say, oh, come sit up here. You say to the fellow who comes in in his, in his cheap raggedy clothes, uh, you sit back there. Brethren, God hates that kind of thing. He hates that kind of thing. God's children are to love one another because they're God's children and because they love Christ and have been saved by Him. We're not to love the saints because they're from our social strata. Brethren, I know people or I have known people that simply want to be in an assembly where we all wear nice suits or we all don't wear suits. They don't want to be with those phony hypocrites that just wear those uppity clothes. Or, so we'll come out and just honor the Lord in our sneaks and our cutoffs. Yeah. That's not the basis. It never has been. It is not now. It never will be. Your social strata is not the issue. Well, I want to be with some nice 20 to 40-year-old white middle-class people. That's hypocrisy. This is to be a spiritual love based on spiritual things. We are to love the saints because they are our kindred in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ shed His precious blood for their righteousness as well as mine. And we can rejoice in that. Regardless of our interests, our personalities, our wealth, our social strata. Brethren, we're to fervently love those that Christ has fervently loved. Not to do that is sub-Christian at best. Non-Christianity at worst. This is to be a comprehensive love as well as sincere and spiritual what do I mean by comprehensive? I mean, you've got to take the whole picture. 
We're not simply to love them because of these other things. At the same time, we must not reject them. But we must love them even though they're sinful. Brethren, our very best days in Christ are shot through with our sin and our fleshly failure. Our best days. And we all have days and moments where if the world were standing there looking at us, they would go, can't be anything about that gospel that's true. Not if that fellow believes it. We all have a look on our face that drives someone else in the room up a tree. We all have tone of voice that may bother someone. Some people get so petty, they go, I don't like you know, the way you pray or things like that. We're sinful. Christ loved us while we were ungodly. He paid the price for our sins. And we must love His people, even though they have great failings. The Lord Jesus Christ still fervently loved Peter after Peter denied Him vehemently three times. Most of us can't take but one stab in the back. And that's it. Right? We must love them even though they disagree with us. Now, I want to be very careful here. If someone says, Jesus Christ is not God, it is true that they disagree with us. But we cannot fellowship with someone who has the wrong Christ. There are certain doctrines that are not negotiable. We believe in salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in the imputed righteousness found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone who rejects that and adds their works to it, we can't fellowship with them. But I'm not talking about the, the non-negotiables of the faith. I'm talking about the areas that there's going to be disagreement on until the Lord returns, even among those who clearly manifest evidence of being God's people. Pre-mill, a-mill, post-mill, head coverings, no head coverings, all of these types of things. I'm not saying they're not important, and you should know what you believe about them. And you should stand in those things. If you're convinced, that's what the Word of God teaches. But you have to love me, even if I don't hold your favorite hobby horse position. We need to be able to sit down with someone and even have a good heated discussion, but get up and say, I don't agree with you, but you're my brother and you're my sister. And I will do all that I can to walk in those areas where we do agree. Amen. And I will pray about those matters where we disagree. Amen. We must also love them even though their gifts are greater than ours. Spiritual jealousy is a despicable thing. And yet we're all susceptible to be jealous of another's gifts. It is sad to me when I see preachers of the gospel all struggling to be, quote, the next Spurgeon. Or struggling to be the next Lloyd-Jones. They want to hear these things said about them. 
And then when they don't quite turn out to be as wonderful as Arthur Pink, or they don't turn out to be in their preaching, the next Spurgeon, they burn in their hearts desiring those kinds of things that they don't have. Or there's a brother in the assembly who's better at articulating something than you are. Or there's a brother who's more cheerful and is giving than they are. Rather than saying, Oh Lord, what a glorious thing as I see you shining in their lives. Oh, make me more like Christ. We sit back and we find all kinds of things wrong with them because we envy the gifts that God has given them. It must be a comprehensive love that not only takes in their love for the Savior and our agreement in truth, but it must also consider that they're sinful, that we are sinful, we may disagree about various things, and that they may actually have greater gifts than I. It must be an appreciative love. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Be kindly affectioned one toward another with brotherly love. Notice, it doesn't say, based on how well you think they're treating you. It says, do this, and God gets the glory. Many of us, unfortunately, have the idea that the Bible is kind of like a a bunch of formulas. If I do this, and if I do this, and if I do this, then I can expect God to do it this way. Don't think that way. Because the Scriptures don't speak that way. It says, do these things because it gets glory to Christ. And you leave the outcome in His hands. I see many people that are growing right now in the family movement that's sweeping our nation, which in itself is a good thing. But they fall into the error of thinking, well, now, if I do this, and if Daddy gives 15 minutes to the children every night, and if I do this and read them three Bible verses, and I play with them more than my Daddy played with me, they're all going to turn out to be wonderful Christian people. I wish I could tell you that were so, but it is not. Then why do I do this? To honor your God. And so it is with the love for the brethren. I'm not saying, oh, if you love that that difficult brother or that difficult sister, that they're within two weeks, they're going to just fall in wonderful, headlong love and appreciation for you. It may not happen. But you leave that to the Lord. You do it because your master did it. He manifested love to those that killed him. It should be an appreciative love, being kindly affection one toward another with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. Now, it is to be a social love as well, a social love. And what I mean by that is we're to fellowship with one another. Far too often in my experience, I hope it is not the case here, but far too often in my experience, church to people simply means a matter of A few minutes where you come together, someone gives a sermon, and then everybody breaks up and goes their own way. And that's all it is until the next time they do that. We have enough preaching stations. The church is the blood-bought covenant community of God's people who are to love one another this way and fellowship with one another. 
You should be in one another's homes. You should look for ways to do something for brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not making something up. I'm telling you what the New Testament says. We're to be looking for ways to lay down our lives for the brethren. No, we have the three or four families that we like to get around with and we go out and have dinner with them once in a while. You're only fooling yourself, brethren, when you think that's manifesting the fellowship of Christ. Psalm 119, verse 63 says, I am a companion of all them that fear thee. You hear that? I'm a companion. I like to be with them that fear thee. And of them that keep thy precepts. That should be the desire of our hearts. You ought to enjoy the company of those that love to walk with Christ. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 20 says, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Would you rather, would you rather spend your time with the lost people or your time with the Lord's children? I'm not talking about it evangelizing the lost. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying, is the desire of your heart, or maybe I should even say, are you more comfortable and would you rather be with those that have no love for Christ? Or those who manifest a desire to walk with the Savior? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, says it this way. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Now you know this passage. But simply ask yourself the question. Paul is obviously pointing to the fact that the answer is none. There isn't any. And what communion hath light with darkness? None. There isn't any. And what concord has Christ with Belial? None. What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? None. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. Brethren, this is one of the most precious thoughts in all the Bible. And you know this well. The church is not these four walls. It is the people that Christ has loved and shed His precious blood to redeem. He loves them so that He bore the thorns in His brow. He loves them so that His hands and His feet were pierced with cruel spikes. He loves them so that His back was plowed with their cruel whips. He loves them so that he was willing to be abandoned on the cross and treated as an unholy, sinful thing for them. He loves them, and they are his people. They should love one another and fellowship with one another. There's no place for monastics in this book. You can't go out and say, yeah, well, you know, I don't like all these people. I just, I just walk with Christ by myself. You can't obey 
most of the New Testament without being in company of God's people. One another, one another, one another, one another, over and over again. For ye are the temple. Ye are the temple. This is God's dwelling. We ought to be able to see at least some sparks of it in us. We might not all be raging fires, but just some sparks that sound like Christ. And encourage that brother. Walk with that sister. Fellowship with one another. Edify one another. It is to be a demonstrative love. A demonstrative love. A love that shows itself. 1 John 3.18, as we've already seen, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And it is this that defines what the deeds are. James chapter 2, verse 15, 16 says, If a brother or sister be naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? In other words, you can talk that religion all day long. But there needs to be a life, living it, giving it. Then it starts looking like biblical Christianity. And done with a love that is fueled by the love that was shown to us by sovereign grace. You know, I hate to tell you this. I'm old enough now that I can say it and say it with some authority. You know, some of the meanest people I've ever met in my life were sovereign grace people. I mean, just flat mean. I just think because they believe election, they're it. Brethren, if election doesn't break you and humble you and make you love the others that God has chosen, you don't understand that doctrine. Oh, I love the doctrine of grace. And then five church splits later, Hold on to the five points, but we don't hold on to our brethren. This is grievous, brethren. The Puritan preacher John Trapp once said, Affection without action, affection without action, is like Rachel, beautiful but barren. It must be a constant love. A constant love. Not only demonstrative. One where we actually give of ourselves. And when we see that a brother has needs or a sister has needs, we do what we can to meet them. Even if it's stumbling. Even if we look silly doing it. Even if we fall on our faces doing it. Even if they don't appreciate it. Even if they hate you more tomorrow than they do today. We're to give of ourselves to them. Because that looks like Christ. Hebrews 13.1 says it's to be a constant love. Let brotherly love continue. With many friends, it's never even sparked. It's never even started. The word continue here means to remain, to abide, to dwell. The idea here is that we are to keep on loving. Keep on loving one another. Listen, 
regardless of what your view of the end times is. One of the things that from time to time would almost convince me that we're in that very last time is because the Lord Jesus Christ said, in those days, the very sign of the end times would be, what? That the love of many would grow cold. Brethren, I tell you, in one assembly after another, it feels like a refrigerator in there. If we see the burning, passionate love of Christ for ourselves, and we say He is our Master, how could we treat those who say they're His any other way? Watson, again, poignantly says this, Love should not expire, but with our life. Children, what that means is, when should your love die? When you do. That's it. (laughs) Until then, love fiercely. Love fervently. Love in a non-hypocritical, phony way. Love that is real, that extends itself. Listen, when someone is really trying to give themselves to you, you can see it, even when you know they're having a hard time doing it. It should be a humble love. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I will, I dwell, excuse me, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. One of the reasons we don't feel some of that wonderful love for one another is because we have quenched the Spirit so very often that we do not sense His presence among us. God dwells with those that are humble. He dwells with them. That is His church. Oh, brethren, that we could see as we sang earlier, let the Amen sound from Thy people again. One of the hymns that I love is says, We long to see thy churches full. But very often, even when we find a full church, we still find it cold. Even though we find uh, people who love the doctrine of grace, we find haughtiness and arrogance and prickly personalities. Brethren, saying that we believe the doctrine of grace and not being humble, in our love, denies those very doctrines. There ought to be no more humble person on the planet than one who understands that before the foundation of the world, the eternal God had set His love upon you, knowing that you were going to be the God-hating rebel you were until that moment when fenced in by His shalls and wills, He brought you face to face with His gospel. You would have run headlong on to hell had He not come to you and drawn you to Himself. It's just astounding to me that people can get so puffed up about that which should bring us so low to the ground and then fill our hearts with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Joy unspeakable 
and full of glory. But what do we see? Anger, suspicion, backstabbing, tail-bearing, tongues wagging. This denies the gospel of Christ. He dwells with those of a contrite and a humble spirit. Well, let me press on. We've spoken about the necessity of the godly man's love, and we've looked at just a few. And by all means, this there are many more, but we've looked at some of just the characteristics of the godly man's love. But then let's talk about the antithesis of the godly man's love. What's the direct opposite of what real love ought to be? Well, let's, let's think of it in these terms. Number one, not to love the saints of God is unnatural. Not to love the saints of God is perversion. Because we've been saved by a God who loved us so that He took His only begotten Son who perfectly kept the law for us. On our behalf, He kept every one of His Father's laws in His heart, in His mind, everything about His actions and in His tongue. And then He died upon the cross, bearing the penalty of all of their broken laws. He became their sin-bearing substitute. God poured out His anger, His wrath, His fury, and His hatred for every one of God's elect on His beloved and holy Son. And who did He do that for? Not the righteous. He came to heal the sick, to call sinners to repentance. And what does He call on you to do? To love those for whom He has done that great work. It is a perversion not to love the saints. It is the opposite. It is the antithesis. If God has loved us with an everlasting love from before the foundation of the world, if because of that love He sent His only begotten Son to be born of a virgin and to keep those laws on our behalf and to bear the penalty of those laws broken, if because that love Christ rose again for our justification and obtained for us eternal redemption. If because of that love He sent His Holy Spirit to regenerate us, to apply all of the glorious gifts that He intended to give us as His children. And if because of that love God predestinated us to be conformed to the image of Christ then nothing in the whole universe could be more unnatural than for those who say they're His not to love one another. Not to love the saints is foolish. It's not only perverse, it's foolish. The best company in the world are those who are filled with the Spirit of God and are being conformed to the image of Christ. It is from them you will learn your most precious lessons. I am often, when I'm in the saints, the, the presence of the Lord's saints, very often they rebuke me down to my toes without them even knowing it. 
I'll hear them speak of some great thing that the Lord has done for them or has taught them. They speak with great glowing tongues of thanksgiving to God for what He's done for them. And I'll realize I haven't thanked the Lord today as I ought. Listen, be, be around the Lord's people. They don't have to take the book and look at you and point a finger and say, here, I rebuke you. Very often, just being in the company of those that are walking with Christ shows you your own weaknesses and encourages you on to your walk in Christ. Being with a brother or sister who prays fervently inspires your own heart to pray fervently. I sat this morning and just listened to the prayers of the saints. And brethren, it was wonderful. It was humbling. I'd rather be there than out at the football game. I'd rather be there than many other places I could be. Be with those who follow peace and who follow after holiness. And they that follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. Our kingdom is not meat and drink, but it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And brethren, I say, I don't see many today that profess to be God's children that have joy. Real joy. Real joy. The joy that comes from knowing that our sins are washed away and all of Christ's righteousness is mine. And lying at the root of that joylessness, very often, not always the case, but very often, is a lack of love for God's children. Well, let me say that not to love the saints is also sinful. It's not only perverse, it's not only foolish, it's sinful. The head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the eternal Word made flesh. He is the mediator of the new covenant. He's our prophet, our priest, our king. Everything we need for a perfect righteousness. Everything we need for a complete, eternal salvation. He is seated at the most exalted place in all of creation and eternity at the right hand of the Father. All power in heaven and earth is given unto Him and all things are delivered unto Him of His Father. Jesus is the King that the Father has set upon His holy hill. He is the one of whom it is declared. I will declare the decree. The Lord, the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my Son. This day have I begotten Thee. Jesus' Father has given Him the heathen for His inheritance. That is us, brethren. And the uttermost parts of the earth for His possession. Jesus shall break them with a rod of iron. Jesus shall dash them with pieces like the potter's vessel. Jesus is the child born, the son given, wonderful, counselor, prince of peace, the mighty God. For by Jesus were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things that He might have the preeminence. Angels and authorities and powers are made subject unto Him. Jesus hath on His vesture and on His thigh a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. This is the biblical testimony of our Lord and our Master. And if we say we live in His kingdom, 
and we don't love His children, we are liars. He, this one, this great and mighty one, has commanded us to love one another. Why would He command us? (laughs) Because it doesn't come naturally to us. Unless we have a new heart. Well, finally, let me close with this final head. The attainment of the godly man's love. The attainment. How do we lay hold of this then? It's a serious business. First of all, we must meditate on the love of Christ and His glorious grace to us. For then this is when the doctrine of grace should light a fire in our hearts that pours out in love for His children. A preferential love for His children. You mean, you know my Savior? You love Him? You feast on His Word? You feast on Him at the table of the Lord? And I love you. Well, I may not feel so great about you at first. But I will choose, by the leading of the Spirit, to do what His Word says towards you regardless of how you respond. And I will keep doing that, not because I'm waiting for you to respond, but because every time I do it, it brings glory to my King. This was the kind of love He poured out on me. Over and over, He wooed us to Himself with His glorious grace, and He showed us mercy and kindness even when we never, never responded. Until that time, He finally captured our hearts by grace. He stayed with it. Secondly, let us love Christ. We love our brethren if we truly love Christ because He loves them. If He lives within us, we'll love them too. How is it that we will love Christ? Can we go in the the corner and work it up in ourselves? No. We love Him because He first loved us. We feast on His wonderful mercy to us. Thirdly, let us pray pleading the promises of God. Brethren, what I'm telling you is a call to die to yourself. And you will never do this except you die to yourself. Is this not exactly what our Lord did? He denied Himself that we might have life. Fourthly, let us keep fellowship and friendly meetings regularly together. And finally, let us look Let us look for opportunities to serve. Let us look for opportunities to serve. The godly man loves the saints. He loves them because Christ loves them and gave Himself for them. He loves them because His holy Christ commanded Him to love them and He has learned from His love how to love. And this is something that must be pursued in every generation. It doesn't just kind of rub off. We've got to learn it at the feet of Christ. The great Baptist, John Gill, left us this poignant illustration. He tells us that the early church father, Tertullian, recorded in his day, that Christians showed such expressions of love to one another when they met in the street that the heathen would say, See how they love one another. When was the last time someone could accuse us of demonstrative public love for God's children? 
So John, the man who saw things in black and white, has commanded us to love one another. This beloved disciple, this son of thunder, the church historian Philip Schaff writes, We see the aged apostle born in the arms of his disciples into the Ephesian assembly and there repeating over and over again the same saying. He was so sick and aged that his brethren had to carry him into the church, the meeting of the church. And he would say over and over, Little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. Till when asked why he said this and nothing else, he replied in these well-known words, Because this is our Lord's command. And if we fulfill this, nothing else is needed. The godly man loves the saints. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Let's pray. Father, we can see these things and say them and read them. And yet, find it virtually impossible to live it the very next day or even the next moments. But this is signs of eternal life, Father. God says so. You say so. For those who do not know you here, Father, for those who perhaps realize that they've never had any love for thy children, draw them unto thee. And Father, where we have sinned against Thee in this way, oh, bring us to a genuine repentance and let us show a love to one another that leaves the lost world with a testimony of our risen Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.